From WAMU 88.5, this is Metropocalypse. I'm Martin DeCaro. Coming up, Metro's board wants answers, and not the same ones they've been hearing for years. D.C. Council Member and Board Chair Jack Evans joins us next. And who is Paul Wiedefeld? A closer look at the man trying to reform WMATA. Plus, what should those train announcements really say, to be honest? Customers, we are screwed. There are extended delays and crowded conditions. Stand back, train is moving, and Nina Totenberg means business. Metropocalypse, episode 14, departs now. Customers should expect extended delays and crowded conditions on trains and platforms. Hey there, I'm Nina Totenberg from NPR. Could you get out of the way? I need to file, I'm on deadline. May it please the commuters? This is not the Supreme Court. You need to move away from the door so that I can get to the Supreme Court. Every time we open up a, a door, something falls out and hits us in the head. I mean, this is just a, a widespread uh, problem at Metro. Metro is broken, literally in some respects. Broken trains, broken tracks. And this week marks the eighth safe track maintenance surge to fix eroding rails along the blue and orange lines in northern Virginia after most of August was spent on the system's heaviest used red line. We're also learning more about the broken culture inside the second largest subway system in the country. Rules not followed, supervisors shirking their duties, and it trickles down to you, the commuter, in the form of derailments and showing up late to work. Joining us on the podcast this week, Metro Board Chairman and D.C. Council Member Jack Evans, who called a special meeting to discuss, well, what the hell is going on lately. Council Member, thanks for entering the Metropocalypse. Uh, thank you, Martin. Glad to be here today. So are you satisfied with what you heard during the special board meeting that you called about what General Manager Paul Wiedefeld and his top lieutenants are doing to turn this thing around? Well, I, I'm actually never satisfied with what I hear. Um, I'm glad we had the meeting yesterday. I thought it was uh, very useful. I want the board to be more engaged in what's happening. And uh, I want the, the uh, board and the leadership to be known to the, to the public who, who rides Metro. And so yesterday, uh, good information, but a bigger picture was a sense of confidence in the leadership that we are, you know, so to speak, on the right track. You know, it's easy to say, you know, we've heard all these answers and explanations before. Let's listen to board member Malcolm Augustine from Prince George's County. Literally one year ago, we had this very same meeting. Three different gentlemen, but we had the same meeting. We had the same kind of discussion about, you know, we should have done this, we should have done that. So things are different now, though, than they were a year ago, aren't they? Oh, yeah, very much different um, in, in a couple of respects. First of all, a year ago, we were just discovering um, really how bad the situation was at Metro. Metro, unfortunately, in the past has just had a habit of not disclosing much of anything. When you ask how things are, they say fine. If you ask if you have enough money, they say they'll make do. And in this whole culture of not telling people what's going on has finally come to an end. So that's number one. And number two, we have new leadership all across the board. Uh, we have a new general manager, Paul Wiedefeld's doing a great job. He's brought in a good team. Uh, with Joe and Pat and a number of other people. And the board, uh, of the 16-member board, you have 12 members who are there less than I've been there. And uh, and so I, I'm, I'm pleased with the new structure. Now the question is, we have to implement Well, it. the results. To the average commuter, things look 
the same as they were from the outside. Well, actually worse. If you ask uh, the average commuter, uh, a year ago we weren't tearing the place up. Now we're tearing the place up. We have closed closures all over the place. We're doing the safe track construction uh, into the n- near future for the next uh, eight months and probably beyond. So, no, from the average commuter, I would say that uh, things look a lot worse than they did a year ago. But they're looking worse in the attempt to make it better. Well, here's another example of the way things are different from General Manager Paul Wiedefeld. We just had an incident the other day on the Orange Line where we had fasteners. And what did we do? We basically stopped it. We went to single tracking in the middle of peak period several months ago. I don't think we do that. So we've reported there have been about 20 track problems discovered since the derailment at East Falls Church that required either speed restrictions or single tracking for emergency repairs. It beggars belief that apparently it used to be standard operating procedure to keep running running trains during something like that. Yeah, exactly, Martin. That's uh, From what I understand, uh, they would have a problem, but they just keep running the trains because the idea was... Uh, to convenience the uh, passengers and and not to uh, put safety above uh, reliability. So that whole culture has changed. But, you know, again, if I'm the average passenger riding the train, I'm not happy about this because I'm getting delayed. I don't know why I'm getting delayed. What do you mean it doesn't work? How does this, what is going on here? So uh, I I always just ask our customers to uh, be patient with us. Uh, We inherited a mess here and we're trying to fix it. All right, so as for the derailment itself, there were a lot of no comments about questions of possible criminal wrongdoing. Uh, Let's start with the fact that the Metro Transit Police are involved in this. That's an unusual move. Yeah, I I think, Martin, the the first two questions I asked yesterday, as you know, is uh, how did this happen, number one, and could we have prevented it? And so the how did it happen, I think we've gotten that. But uh, could we have prevented it? That's what we're still trying to find out. I mean, did they do the inspections? They said they did. Were the reports falsified? If Paul has brought in criminal investigators, police, et cetera, he, he must have some suspicions that things are not the way they should be. He has not shared them with me for obvious reasons, but bottom line is we will get a full report at some point about what happened here. You asked Chief Safety Officer Patrick Lavin about whether inspection reports were falsified. Let's listen to the answer he gave you. I can't speak to the falsification piece of it, but there was a report that was submitted and based upon some of the documents we saw in internal conversations, that's why we requested Ron do an independent look at it as well. Ron being Ron Pavlik, uh, Metro Transit right. Police Chief. You know, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes or Watson, for that matter, to infer from that statement that something apparently was not right. No, I, I agree with that. Something's not right. And so I, I don't know what the answer to that is, but clearly something's not right. And I think, Martin, again, the positive of that is in the past, I don't know they would have done this. I think they would have just kind of moved on. Now we're taking this very seriously, and if there is wrongdoing, then people will be uh, pay the consequences. So the, the term safety culture keeps coming up, and when it comes to you know falsifying inspection reports, apparently this was par for the course. Let me read an excerpt from Washington Post article by Frederick Kunkel about the mechanic who was fired for falsifying preventive maintenance inspection reports about a tunnel fan over at LaFont Plaza. This story has uh, blown up, uh, figuratively speaking, with lawsuits and countersuits. The mechanic, who had been employed with the agency for 13 years, had been following routine procedure in a workplace where management fostered incompetence and allowed people to make stuff up as as they went along. The supervisor of the fired mechanic 
quote, acknowledged an arbitration testimony that he gave out pre-signed inspection reports to his crew. That is ridiculous. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, why is that happening? What What is the... Uh the thought process that leads one to do that? Are we trying to get the job done really quickly? We really don't care what the results are. What happened here? So again, I mean, as Paul said, every time we open up a, a door or something falls out and hits us in the head, I mean, this is just a, <laughs> a widespread uh, problem at Metro of one thing after another. Uh, but again, we're addressing them as they come along. We got an email from WAMU listener named Al uh, with a question. And I think a lot of people are asking this question. When are we going to start holding Metro workers responsible is this question. Well, I think you're seeing that happen now. You've seen uh, the management, Paul, fire people. Uh, we we uh, and, and I think as we go forward with the criminal investigation now at uh, Falls Church, uh, people are going to be held responsible. And I think I've always said leadership starts from the top, not from the bottom. So, again, with a new general manager, a new staff, hopefully new supervisors, we're going to instill in our workforce a, a sense of uh, responsibility and a sense of dedication to their job. I, I had the opportunity, Martin, let's just say this uh, back J- July 30th, to meet with 2,500 of our workers. It was a hot Sunday, uh, Saturday afternoon, two, 12 to 2 over to church uh, in uh, Capitol Hill. And our workforce uh, are, are a dedicated group. They, they want to do well. They work hard. They, I listened for two hours as people told stories about what they do. And they feel not appreciated and they feel not listened to. And I, you heard me ask that last. It was my last question I asked yesterday. How do we change that, that the workers feel like they're being listened to, that they're being appreciated? And Paul gave a great answer. I mean, that's how that's what we're trying to do over there. It is a cultural problem when workers are being put in a situation where the expectation is to do things the wrong way. Well, how could we not produce negative outcomes, right. something like that? So are you riding Metro more often? Uh, yeah, I ride it. Uh, not as often as I'd like. I mean, I live in Georgetown, which makes it very difficult yeah. to ride the Metro anywhere because we don't have a Metro. So I have to drive or walk to a stop, which is about a mile away. And so, you know, I always say public transportation works best when it's convenient and affordable. And for many of us, Metro is neither. Uh, but I do ride it from uh, my office to uh, Metro headquarters uh, whenever we have meetings and back and then and, and, and arbitrarily at other times just to check it out. And I know we're going to really make an attempt. I said when I came into office, try and get to all 91 Metro stops. How and, many uh, have you done? Oh, probably not more than 15, maybe, <laughs> you know, but uh, we have a ways to go. Uh, but it's interesting in my ward, just a little fun fact, uh, I have uh, 16 metro stops in Ward 2, more than in any other jurisdiction in the region, any other ward, any other county. Uh, so it's really interesting. Uh, I have a lot of metro just in my ward alone, and, and it's heavily riding, you know, I, and so those stops I know quite well. And uh, so you get a real sense of how things are working, uh, even just by riding in the downtown area. Yeah, some of our listeners may not know you were on the Metro board for quite a while in the 1990s. You were the chair twice. Things were a lot different then than they are now. Uh, So when you returned to the board and then became the chairman uh, in January, I believe it was January, you did say you would ride the system more often. How has that helped you with your job? Um, well, what it does is it gives you a sense, I mean, the frustration that riders feel. I remember getting on one day, I had a board meeting, you know, at 10 o'clock, and I got on at, uh, uh, over by my office there at Metro Center, and uh, we, we didn't even go one stop, and the, the, somebody got sick on a train in front of us or something, and all the trains stopped. And, and there I sat on the train for 20, 25 minutes. And I was ready to jump off the train. And I think I got off the train. I was going to walk. And then I got back on the train. And so you, you, by riding it, you get a sense, a feel for the frustration. And then secondly, 
uh, just the state of the condition of the trains. I, I got on one day and I couldn't believe it. I got on 00001. It was the first car produced in 1976. Uh, what are the odds of that happening? And, and it was one of those 1000 series cars, the first car. And, you know, it looks like it was the first car produced. I mean, everything's worn out, you know, run down, shoddy. About 200 of those rail cars are still, still in running. Service. And that's why we got to get these 7000 series cars out there. So riding the train is valuable to experience the same uh, frustrations and, and what are uh, now on the other side, when it works, uh, my law firm's over at uh, Farragut North, and so when I jump on the t- subway at Metro, if things work, I can be over there in two and a half minutes. I, I mean, that's it's still the phenomenal. best way to get around. It's town the best it's way working. to get around. But then I, I remember getting off and looking up, and the sign says Connecticut Avenue and points in both directions. <laughs> so you know, it's like, well, which way do I go to get off where I want to get off? All right, so Jack Evans gets confused on Metro platforms like all of us. Interesting. Coming up, we'll ask him about the best audio of the year from Capitol Hill, the time he went to Congress and found himself in a shouting match. Go to Beijing, Shanghai, Paris, London, Moscow, and see a world-class system. Those are all communist countries, Mr. Evans. Paris, London, communist countries? That's coming up. This month at WAMU, we're lifting our voices to shine a light on black changemakers throughout American history. Some you know and some you don't, but they all change the world. Hear the stories of these incredible scientists, activists, artists, and more throughout February on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at WAMU.org. Still to come on Metropocalypse, we'll find out how NPR's Ari Shapiro and Nina Totenberg would rewrite Metro announcements if they could. Step back, doors closing. I said the doors are closing. Putting your hands in them is not going to make them open. This isn't an elevator, dumbass. We'll also hear from AP's Ben Knuckles, who recently profiled Metro General Manager Paul Wiedefeld. But first, we continue our conversation with Metro Board Chair Jack Evans, who also represents Ward 2 on the D.C. City Council. He's a Democrat. And we asked him if he feels like the past leadership of Metro, its general managers, its boards, deserve blame for the sorry state of affairs we find ourselves in. I, I'm very angry in many ways uh, at the boards and general managers from the past. Uh, and I, I take this back to 2006 when Dick White testified uh, in before Congress that, death, that uh, Metro was in a death spiral. Uh, everybody had to be on notice at that point in time, members of Congress, members of the board, general managers, that we had serious problems and nobody did anything. Richard right? Sarles, who hasn't yeah. spoken publicly since he left Metro uh, a couple well, years ago, he, he had the same opportunities to do these things that Paul Wiedefeld is doing now, and he did not do them. Yeah, you had Richard Sarles, you had Cato before him, and uh, going all the way back to Dick, who I think I applaud Dick White for, because he at least acknowledged the problems and tried to do something about it. But everybody after him, I don't know what they were doing. Same with the boards. You had board after board come on and move on, and uh, there was not this this uh, hands-on approach that needed to be taken. And so I, I believe now we have a, a much different group here who are taking a hands-on approach, and uh, and that, that I think is the positive sign. But, I mean, the thing is in such a mess that it's going to take a while to dig out of this hole. And, you know, you've been a vocal proponent of Metro. Let's talk about your trip to Capitol Hill in May. First, did you expect going into that hearing 
you'd be sitting there raising your voice at members of Congress about this? It wasn't my intent when I went up there to raise my voice, but I was, um, yeah, during the course of the hearing, it became clear to me that either people were grandstanding or not taking this uh, situation seriously. And uh, as a consequence, I, I kind of lost my, pen, my temper with everyone and said, look, this is a serious business. We need the money. We need to run this thing. And uh, it's not a chicken and the egg where, you know, we produce the results, you give us the money. You don't give us the money, there ain't going to be any results. Here is Jack Evans versus Congressman Mark Meadows. We're the second largest transit system in America. So that justifies well, New York, and, is, and we are the New York is capital. Higher. Chicago is higher. If you have higher. the opportunity to travel the world as I have, and go to Beijing, Shanghai, Paris, London, Moscow, and see a world-class system, this system has become an embarrassment in the nation's capital, and we are all in this together. And Those are all communist all countries, of, Mr. Evans. Paris, London, communist countries. The federal governments in those countries pay for all of the system. All I'm asking from you is $300 million, which is your fair share, given the fact that we transport 50% of your workforce every day. Well, what's going on in your mind as that started to escalate? Yeah, well, again, my frustration with that whole hearing was the either the lack of understanding or the grandstanding by the members of Congress when it came to Metro. This is serious business. This is not trying to, for people to make points back home with their constituents. And uh, I don't know if I got across to Congressman Meadows and Micah and the rest of the group uh, how important this is. And that hasn't changed at all, Martin. I mean, I still need that money. We still transport 50% of the federal workforce. And uh, things are going to really get in, in dire straits come the end of the year if uh, if we're not in a position to uh, fund this thing. Well, I did learn that Paris and London are communist countries. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. I think you got a little confused there. But uh, the point I was trying to make in those cities, the federal government yeah. is a large contributor to making those systems work. Yeah, you've been at this a long time. Uh, you're a politician who understands, you know, you, you bargain over things. You're not going to get everything you want. You want $300 million a year from the federal government for operating costs. You also want the federal government to chip in what would potentially be billions over many years for some much-needed infrastructure improvements, like another tunnel under the Potomac River for Metro. You know you're not going to get all of this. What is the most important? At the moment, the most important is the uh, $300 million in operating money. I have to either get it from the federal government or $100 million from each of the three jurisdictions. So that has to be done as we begin to prepare our FY18 budget. And then secondly is the uh, PREA money. Right now, the federal government contributes $150 million towards our capital budget. Each jurisdiction has kicks to match in it. another 50, so it's $300 million. Yeah, that's, that's going to expire in a couple of years. Two years, yeah. So what I would like to do is get that re-upped at double the amount. So we get 150 now. If the feds it up at the 300, local jurisdictions each kick in 100 or at $600 million right there. You, you take that amount, dedicated funding source, which we uh, talked a little bit about, uh, where the region uh, puts in place a sales tax, a 1% sales tax raises another 500 to 750 million dollars a year. So now I'm starting to talk real money here. And that's what I need in order to finance the 18 billion dollar shortfall which we have between now and 10 years from now. I get that in place, I get the operating dollars in place, then I can really put Metro on a sound financial footing in order to fix then the uh, the problems that we have. Yeah, for as long as Metro stays open from now till the end of time, it will need billions with a capital B to continue to operate and expand. And people say 
they get it, but you know the, the bottom line is, will they come up with the cash that's necessary? Well, you know, Martin, they have to, because if Metro doesn't work, nothing works. You've heard me say that, and what I mean by that, if Metro doesn't work, the region just bogs down. Cars get clogged up on the roads, nobody can get anywhere. So Metro is as important to this region as roads and cars are. And the, the governments, as you know, have no problem funding roads and cars. We have gas taxes. We pay billions and billions of dollars to build roads everywhere. So that, that mindset has to include public transportation to augment the roads and cars uh, to make everything move smoothly. And I, that's what I'm trying to get across to everybody is how important Metro shouldn't be a stepchild. Metro should be a real contributor to the uh, to the region. And I do want to stress this at the end of the day, Martin. The, the flip side of what I'm saying is if I do not get this money, I am preparing, and Metro's board is preparing a real budget this year for the first time in a long time. We're going to fund pensions. We're going to have all the money in the budget that we need. And then it has to be contributed by the region, whether it's the federal government or the local governments. If that does not happen, then we are going to have to take dramatic steps. And if it means closing down metro during hours, during whatever, closing down bus service, we will have to cut back on service if we do not have the funding necessary to run the system. That's true. If the money's not there, you can raise fares or cut service or some combination of both. And you have uh, said you're not going we're to not raise fares. fares. No, We're not raising fares. No, we're not raising fares. So the only alternative I have, if Virginia or Maryland or somebody says we're not going to pay, is to cut the service in those jurisdictions. And nobody wants to do that. But I, I don't want to get into this game a chicken with the governors or something like that so the extent of these problems are really mind-boggling so before we let you go we're trying out a new feature on our podcast we know that folks are hearing a lot of uh, the announcements on the platforms and the trains telling them to be patient there are delays we're wondering what an honest announcement that reflects the way people are using the service would sound like Customers, we are screwed. There are extended delays and crowded conditions, and we're not going anywhere very quickly today. NPR's Nina Totenberg with the uh, blunt assessment. Councilmember Evans, give us your announcement. To all of our customers, we have delays on the lines. Um, Your board and your chair and your general manager are working tirelessly to Uh, Fix those delays, so we ask you to be patient, uh, knowing full well that uh, your trip is going to take you longer, and you're going to experience uh, uh, delays that that are not helpful. But bear with us, and um, eventually we're going to get this fixed. That was a very verbose announcement. But (laughs) as long as the speaker is not blaring at a thousand decibels, people might be able to understand. I was going to tell you actually how it really sounds, and... It's either too loud or too soft, uh, and that's getting Or it's garbled. I mean, it still drives me crazy. I get on the system, and it's still garbled. I mean, how does it be garbled? You could call me from here to Beijing on my iPhone, and it's not garbled. You know, and and at this juncture, (laughs) uh, the default for me anyway is I expect delays, and if everything goes smoothly, then that's fine. I don't pay attention to the announcements anymore. Exactly. So, oh, well. Whatever. Jack Evans, council member from the District of Columbia and the chair of the Metro Board. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Martin. It's been really good. Appreciate it. And for your listening pleasure, here is All Things Considered host Ari Shapiro offering his riff on what the Metro announcements should sound like. Doors opening. Step back to allow customers to exit. If you're wearing a backpack, turn around really fast, smack someone in the face, and then pretend you didn't notice. It'll make their day. Step back, doors closing. Maybe you'll step back into somebody cute who you didn't realize was there. Your eyes will meet. You'll ask her out. The next thing you know, you'll have three kids and college debt. 
Hope that helps. Bye. So what would your honest Metro announcement sound like? We want to hear them. Send us your ideas as a voice memo to metro at wamu.org or reach out to us on the Metropocalypse Facebook group. Everyone who sends us a voice memo will get one of our nifty new Metropocalypse endurance pins. Metropocalypse returns in a moment. We continue on Metropocalypse. We've heard from Metro Board Chair Jack Evans. Now let's learn a little bit more about the man who runs the country's second largest subway. First, we'll rewind to January 16th, 2015. Metro General Manager Richard Sarles retires. He left town without speaking publicly, without even holding a news conference about what had happened just four days earlier. Carol Glover died. Eighty other passengers were sickened after toxic smoke filled their yellow line train after leaving LaFont Plaza. You know the story by now. It took about 10 months to find Sarl's successor. Paul Wiedefeld was unofficially the Metro board's third choice. The first choice, at least of then-board chairman Mort Downey, was Grace Kronikin of San Francisco's Bay Area Rapid Transit System. But that did not work out. So the job description was then rewritten, and months later, Downey thought he had his man, Neil Cohen, financial executive in the aerospace and airline industries, but he withdrew in embarrassing fashion. So plan B or C, depending on how you want to look at it, Paul Wiedefeld, whose highest profile gig before this was running Baltimore's airport. Wiedefeld's been on the job at Metro for almost a year now, and in that time he's made some bold decisions, like shutting down the entire rail system on virtually no notice. As a reporter covering him day in, day out, I found him to be much more accessible than Richard Sarles, but you also sometimes walk away from an interview with him without feeling like he told you all that much. I spoke with Ben Knuckles of the Associated Press, who recently profiled Metro's general manager. I went back and looked at all the news articles that were written about him when he was uh, leading BWI Airport. He never said or did anything controversial. He would talk about the airport and the expansion project and how well it was going, but it was all very dull. It was filler. Yeah. <laughs> what he had to say was just uh, was just what you would expect. Business is booming at the airport. We're very happy. Uh, Southwest Airlines, we're building a new terminal for them, and it's going to be completed on schedule. That's the sort of thing that he would be quoted talking about. Nothing that would indicate how decisive he really is. No, not really. At, but the people who uh, worked with him in Maryland all told me that he is very decisive and that he did a really good job bringing in the expansion project at BWI on time and under budget. Let's talk about experience. We led this segment talking about, you know, what an embarrassing episode it was last year as Metro's board was trying to find a replacement for Richard Sarles. And there was this big debate in the region. Do we need a transit specialist? Do we need an organizational turnaround expert, a combination of the two? But one thing you probably really can't predict when you're looking at resumes and interviewing candidates is how someone going to react to the unforeseen. How decisive will they be? Will they be willing to make unpopular decisions? And he has so far. He said that uh, he, he got his management experience mostly on the job working in Maryland state government in a variety of roles. He, he worked for the Maryland Department of Transportation as a planner he was just given a wide variety of projects. It started when he the project was to organize a bike ride across the state of Maryland, okay. and uh, he handled that well, and so he just got more projects, and that's how he 
gained experience as a manager. Of course, he he didn't go to business school. He doesn't have an MBA. He has a uh, master's in uh, urban planning. You start your profile about a day he's on the platform at Union Station, and he realizes not only are the trains not running on time and there are crowded platforms, he also noticed something else, right? Yeah, he noticed that there was an attitude among the Metro employees and the police officers who were there that this was business as usual, that nothing really needed to be done. He noticed that they weren't particularly visible. And one of the changes he made after that incident was to change their uniforms so that they were more visible. And and he also changed policies and procedures for how employees are supposed to react when the platform is crowded and people can't move and people can't get on the train. He was upset about it. He was upset that it happened to him, but he was more upset, as he told me, that there was an attitude of nonchalance and that other Metro customers were going to see this and have this experience and they needed to feel like the Metro staff was doing something about it. So he continues to get the benefit of the doubt of riders. Even the most severe critic would have to give him some time to get caught up to speed as he takes over a transit system in crisis and now we're in the middle of safe track. Do you get the sense that he realizes there will only be so much more time before you know, he takes, I think he has taken ownership, but then he gets starting to get blamed for some of these ongoing problems. Yeah, I think, he, yeah, <laughs> he realizes that. He he has a thick skin, I think. He doesn't seem to get too bothered, and he certainly understands that more problems are going to come up and that safe track isn't just going to be finished and everything is going to be fine. He understands that it's a, a long process, and yes, the longer he's there, the more he will be blamed, and he, he gets it. Did you sense any frustration on his part? No, I didn't get a, a huge amount of frustration. I, I think he he mentioned uh, it's an organization that has uh, had problems for a long time, um, that have developed over many years, if not decades, cultural problems that he understands he can't fix in a day or a month or even a year. He seems happy that he doesn't have to play the role that Jack Evans is playing, going up to Capitol Hill and demanding hundreds of millions of dollars from Congress that doesn't want to cooperate with that, of course. They're not a bad one-two punch because uh, uh, Jack Evans is happy to play the role of Mr. Metro and, and be the big picture guy who explains what's going on with the system to people who don't pay attention and to those who hold the purse strings. Uh, Wiedefeld is definitely, as Evans put it, a nuts and bolts guy who wants to get into the tunnels and see what's going on with the tracks and figure out a way to fix the system. I wonder if Mr. Wiedefeld will ever take on some of what Jack Evans is doing now. Jack is not guaranteed to be chairman again uh, next January. There could be a new Metro board chairman, and depending on who it is, may not be as vocal advocating for the money that at least Councilmember Evans and others believe Metro needs. The longer he's there, the more likely he'll have to do that, I'm sure. And, and he should. He's not going to come out and say that he can't do the job without more money because then he would be perceived as weak. But he understands the funding challenges that the system has, and he will, I'm sure, be an advocate for changing that. Associated Press reporter Ben Knuckles with us here on the Metropocalypse podcast. It's a question of what money and for which purposes. 
Jack Evans continues to say we need money for our day-to-day expenses in addition to you know long-term infrastructure projects. Metro has two budgets, an operating budget and a capital budget. Paul Wiedefeld, as you mentioned, is focused on the nuts and bolts right now. He's worried about getting the system working again. It remains to be seen when he may switch gears a bit and start focusing on the big expansion projects that most folks around Metro believe the system's going to need, namely a new tunnel under the Potomac River that'll take billions of dollars and the federal government might have to pay for some of that. Well, I'm sure he would say that the, a new tunnel would help Metro, but he That's is, right. um, he, he, he was uh, careful not to criticize his predecessors. He said that um, the, the, his predecessors as Metro general manager were all accomplished people with uh, long careers in transit they didn't uh, suddenly get in the job and get stupid. They knew what they were doing, but he said his one criticism of his predecessors was that they were perhaps overly focused on expansion and rather than on maintenance. And Metro was run for many years, as he put it, like a construction company, and he wants to run it like a DPW, a Department of Public Works. In a way, he's criticized his predecessors by getting rid of a good number of people who used to be here. He's fired multiple and senior level managers. One person I interviewed whose comments didn't even make it into my story was Peter Franchot, the Maryland comptroller. Oh, interesting. And he was very adamant about his opinion that Metro's struggles were mostly the result of poor management. And he expressed a great deal of confidence in Wiedefeld's skills as a manager Wiedefeld is, has learned on the job how to manage large organizations, and he understands that some employees are talented and some employees are flawed, and um, he's comfortable in that role of making those unpopular decisions. All right, that wraps it. We heard Jack Evans' willingness to call out past failures and to name past general managers and board members who he believes did not do the job. We've heard how the current GM is trying to stay above the fray, move the agency away from thinking of itself as an ever-expanding construction company. Good stuff. Thanks to Ben Knuckles from the Associated Press and Jack Evans for joining us. And a special thanks to Nina Totenberg and Ari Shapiro for their takes on Metro announcements. Again, we want to hear your brutally honest Metro announcements. Let us know what you're feeling on the Metro platform or stalled train and what you wish Metro would tell you over the PA system. That's if it's working. Find out how to send us a voice memo of your announcement at wamu.org slash metro or shoot us an email at metro at wamu.org. We'll play our favorites on future episodes of Metropocalypse and we'll give you one of our nifty new Metropocalypse Endurance Award pins. Metropocalypse is produced and edited by Brendan Sweeney with Joe Warminski and John Olgolnik. Andy McDaniel is our director of content. This episode, you heard music by Aerialist, Rootbug, Saltman Knowles, and Fat Neil. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. If you like what you've heard, please give us a review on iTunes or mark Interesting on NPR One or whichever podcaster you use. It may not make the trains run on time, but it'll help us reach new ears of more frustrated commuters. Until next time, I'm Martin DeCaro.